And we'll continue now by taking our Bibles and turning to John chapter 6. John 6 will be beginning in verse 35 for our study and concluding with verse 48. And for those of you who have been with us, you'll note that we've been here for a few weeks now, and we will be here a few weeks more. It's kind of weird. I try to plan out the sermon series ahead of time, and I just, I can't ever do it. Last week, I used a football analogy saying that I thought I was going to go for 10, but realized I just needed to gain a few yards. Uh, this time, I could use a, uh, a biking analogy. You know, sometimes you need your, your bike in high gear. Sometimes you need it in low gear. Low gear will get you a little more power, but it doesn't go as fast. This is a low gear uh, type of text. Um, the reason why, and I, I was trying to think through this so you can understand, you know, like what's going on in the preacher's mind. Now, there's a few reasons why one would decide to slow down. Uh, one is the density of the text. Some texts are just really easy to read. You, you know exactly what it's saying. Some are thick. They have uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of things going on. Density. Another reason is difficulty, not of the text, but of the topic. There may be a topic involved that is just really hard for people to understand. Maybe it's something that's controversial or something that is of interest in the particular day. And then the last thing is the desire to apply. There'll be certain times where just pastorally you think, we need to spend more time on this. We need to, to flesh this out a little more. I think all three of these are what are forcing me to slow down here. But today in particular, um, I'm slowing down on behalf of the difficulty of the topic. For some of you, um, the topic to be discussed is not an issue at all. In fact, uh, you may have even, in part, chose to attend this church on behalf of the fact that you knew that this church would preach this as it came. Uh, some of you, as you're introduced to this particular topic, uh, may actually vehemently object to the notion, or at least what you think is being taught. And so in light of that, I have to slow down immensely. The topic in question is election. Does the Father choose people and therefore they are saved? Or do people choose God and therefore they are saved? Now, I just gave a, a binary proposition. It's not that simple. But through the history of the church, there really has been this kind of debate that goes on between individuals, some emphasizing God's sovereignty and his power and saying that man is saved in light of that, others emphasizing man's responsibility and saying that God in some way uh, adjusts to that to honor man's free will. If I'm using just the most basic categories, just for the sake of introducing you to this debate this morning, uh, those who are more interested in uh, God's work and what he's doing, emphasizing his sovereignty, normally fall in, under the label of Calvinist, even though that's not a good term. And then another camp is called Arminian, and that's the one that emphasizes man's responsibility. Uh, for what it's worth, to those of you who may be um, closely wed to one of these two labels or positions, 
I want you to know that I was actually first ordained as a pastor in an Armenian church. I grew up and I was educated at a free will Baptist Bible college. My final exam was to actually debunk and disprove anything that somebody on the God uh, sovereignty emphasizing side of things would have ever said to do. So I, I know this world well, but I was also educated in this realm as well. And I know what this side of things uh, believes. And to be fair, truth in advertising, this is where I would stand today on this side of things. But what ultimately matters is not two schools of thought, but what does the scriptures actually say? What do the scriptures say? And so what I want to happen today as we uh, enter into what is controversial for some is I want us to understand that there is much common ground despite the label that you most gravitate toward. I could most illustrate this with an interaction from church history. There was a man named Charles Simeon. He's a preacher in England. He would find himself on the Calvinist side of things. He was a contemporary of somebody that you would know very well, John Wesley. Wesley would find himself on the Arminian side of things. By God's providence, they were able to meet one another one day, And Simeon's biographer records their interchange with the following. It starts off uh, with Simeon addressing Wesley. Sir, I understand that you are called an Arminian, and I have been sometimes called a Calvinist. Therefore, I suppose we are to draw daggers. But before I consent to begin the combat, with your permission, I will ask you a few questions. Pray, sir. Do you feel yourself a depraved creature, so depraved that you would never have thought of turning to God if he had not first put it into your heart? Wesley replied, yes, I do indeed. Simeon follows up. And do you utterly despair of recommending yourself to God by anything you can do? And look for salvation solely through the blood and righteousness of Christ? Yes, solely through Christ. But sir, supposing you were at first saved by Christ, are you not somehow or other to save yourself afterwards by your own works? No, I must be saved by Christ from first to last. Allowing then that you were first turned by the grace of God, are you not in some way or other to keep yourself by your own power? No. What then are you to be upheld every hour and every moment by God as much as an infant in his mother's arms? Yes, altogether. And is all your hope in the grace and mercy of God to preserve you into his heavenly kingdom? Yes, I have no hope but in him. And this is how Simeon concludes. Then, sir, with your leave, I will put up my dagger again, for this is all my Calvinism. This is my election, my justification by faith, my final perseverance. It is in substance all that I hold and as I hold it, and therefore, if you please, instead of searching out terms and phrases to be a ground of contention between us, we will cordially unite in those things wherein we agree. And the men shook hands. Friends, I want you to understand that no matter who you've argued with over this topic in the past, whether it was online or in person, or even if you've debated this in your own mind, there is much on which we may agree. 
And the spirit of this text today is not for anyone to sharpen their daggers so that they can go jab another, but it's for the daggers to be put away and for us to feed by faith on Jesus, who is the bread of life. The doctrine of election is introduced in the context of Jesus making this argument to people, this plea for them to feed on him by faith for eternal life. And so the the point of this, which is often deemed controversial, is to answer some hard questions. Jesus is dealing with a group of very obstinate people, and some of them just aren't getting it. He's presenting eternal life in himself, and what do they want? They want physical bread. He tells them that they need to believe on him as the bread that's come from heaven, and they object. How can anyone come from heaven? Jesus is imploring over and over and over and over again for them to believe, and yet they will not believe. And so in the middle of his discourse, he actually explains why some will believe and some will not. And he does this to assure those who have actually believed and to actually humble those who are obstinately refusing to believe. It's all about getting the individual to move their stubborn will to unlock it. And here's where it gets really practical. You know individuals that just will not believe for some reason or another. You're like, what's next for me? What do I do? How do I help them? It could be your children. It could be your friends. It could be those that you've been witnessing to through your own sphere of influence here in this church or the community. And you're like, what is next? What do I do? Jesus will model for you what he does. He'll give you a perspective that will help you move forward, push through. And then there's another practical advantage of this text. And that is for those of us who fail and falter, over and over again. What do we do? Maybe we know that we should be feeding on the bread of life who is Jesus. He should be our ultimate satisfaction, but somehow, some way, some other thing tends to slip in there. Maybe we want to be believing, but somehow, some way, the belief is eroded. Doubts arise. What do we do with that? This is why this discourse on election unto the eating of eternal life matters for us this morning. Now, I want to make you aware of something, that as we make our way through verses 35 to 48, it does not follow neat little outlines. I try, I really do, folks, I try so hard to try to make the, uh, the square, <laughs> I mean, the round peg of our Western thinking fit the square peg of Eastern thought. It just doesn't always line up. And some of the difficulty comes from the fact that these are real-world accounts. You know what you've got going on here? You've got a bunch of people who were ravenously interested in Jesus, and they want him for one thing. He's presenting himself as something else. And then he ends up in a synagogue, he's teaching here, and the way that synagogue formats work, people could speak up. And so we've got like real world conversation. Jesus isn't writing a clean book here that nobody gets to speak into. This is like a real live argument. And it lasts from the verse 22 all the way down to the end of the chapter. 
So here's what I need to do. I want to help give you the, uh, the blow-by-blow like, of the fight, like the conversation as it happens. I'm going to tell you what Jesus said. I'm going to tell you how they objected. I want you to see how the conversation moves, okay? I'll, I'll, I'll review it briefly. And in it, you're going to note or be listening out for at least these, what I'll call, essentials of eternal life. Jesus is explaining here what is essential for enjoying him for eternal life. And there's three things in particular I'd have you listen out for. Now, after we get through this story of the conversation, then I will unpack the significance of that and list explicitly. I messed up last time I did this. I will not do it again. I will list explicitly what those essentials are. So follow the story of the conversation from the text. See if you can identify those essentials for eternal life. What, what must happen for one to believe in Jesus and therefore enjoy eternal life? And then we'll unpack those last and final essentials. All right, the story is simple. Right now we've seen so far that they come to him in verses 25 to 34, and they want physical bread. Do you remember that? And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you don't need physical bread. You need eternal bread. You need that which will satisfy your soul. And so I used the metaphor last week of Jesus pitching the ball to them and then missing. And I said in verse 35, he sets the ball on the tee and makes it crystal clear. All right, here it is. I am the bread of eternal life. You must feed on me by faith. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So this is what he wants them to do. He wants them to partake of him by faith. He wants them to believe in him and thereby enjoy eternal life. He's saying, you get it from me. He's going with a metaphor. And he's going to use this metaphor, this word picture, deeply throughout the entire text. In fact, it's going to get so controversial at the end that it's going to sound downright disgusting. He will say, you need to feed on my flesh and drink my blood. Now, if you just jump in there, you're like, oh my goodness, this is disgusting. It's cannibalistic. And yet Jesus has already defined his terms. Here, he said, to partake of me is to believe in me. It's to come to me. That's what he wants from this. He wants everyone in this room today to come to to Jesus by faith. That's what he's explained. But he's going to clarify something in verse 36. Move from explanation to clarification. He's going to clarify there's only a certain group of people that can come. Notice verse 36. He sets up the problem. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Jesus is acknowledging that even though they've seen him, they've seen what he's done, some of them are not believing. They're they're not trusting in him. And here, here he's going to explain then who will believe. Notice verse 37. Just let the text speak. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Why? For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, what is that will? Verse 38. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now, pause there for a moment. I want you to just note the conversation. Jesus is saying to these people who are not believing in him, the people that he wants to believe in him, 
hey, here's who will be able to believe. I know that some of you will not, but there is a group of people who will be able to believe, those that the Father has given to me. In fact, they will come to me, which is just another way of saying they will believe in me. And what he says is, I will never cast them out. Now, if you, about a year ago or a little over a year ago, I preached the same text for a different reason, just a few verses of it. And I explained at that time that that particular phrase, I will never cast out, is a term called litotes. It's when you actually say the opposite of something to exaggerate so that you can emphasize its opposite. So um, the classic phrase is, this ain't my first rodeo. If I tell you this ain't my first rodeo, I'm not telling you that I've never done this before. I'm saying that, no, I have a lot of experience in this particular way, in this particular thing. When Jesus says, I will never cast you out, he's not saying, okay, don't worry. I was thinking about casting you out, but I'm really not. He's saying the opposite. I will retain you in my possession. I will keep you for myself. I will raise you up on the last day because the Father's given you to me. I will take advantage of it. I, I, I will see it as something precious and trusted to me, and I will carry it through to the end. He is clarifying who will believe, and he does it from the divine perspective. He does it from the divine perspective, but I'm going to step down for a second because I want you to understand visually, at least as I'm explaining this, that he also explains things from the human perspective. He's still explaining who will be able to enjoy him for eternal life. He's just explained it as those that the Father gives to the Son. Those are the ones who will believe and therefore be raised up on the last day. Now continue reading, because look in verse 40. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you notice he's talking about the will of the Father? He's talking about people being raised up on the last day. He's explaining the exact same thing he just explained, but what's different this time? Instead of explaining it from the divine perspective of God giving some to the Son, now he's explaining it from the human perspective. Here's what it looks like. People coming to the Son in faith and believing in him. Two perspectives. Both true. So that's the clarification. Who will believe, who will partake? Those that the Father has given and those who believe. They object. Here's the objection. We move from the clarification to the objection. Look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said... Now, Paul's, I want you to notice what they're grumbling about. We would grumble over the fact that he said that some were elect. They don't care about that. They knew from Deuteronomy chapter 7, that passage we read earlier, that they had no hope of ever being chosen by God in the first place. Remember, he says, I didn't choose you because you were great or because you were mighty. You were the fewest of all people. I, I chose you despite yourself. They don't, they don't mind election. What they mind is origination. It's the fact that he said, look in your Bible again, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They don't like the fact that he says that he's from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? For them, notice, it's their unbelief again. They just can't get it. Like, 
hey, we know that he's got, I mean, he was raised by Joseph and Mary. They don't know of John chapter 1, verse 1 to 18. All they think is like, there's a human explanation for this guy, and he's saying that he's from heaven. I can't believe that he's from heaven. And notice, they can't believe. They can't believe. So Jesus is going to clarify again who can believe. He's not going to give up on this. Notice, we move from objection to another clarification. Look at verse 43. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He says it again for a third time. And once more, it is from the divine perspective. Now, friends, I, I'm not a, I've never taken like a formal logic class. One of my kids was doing that this year. I found it highly entertaining that so much energy had to be expended on things like no one and all and every. Just use your, use your logic for a second, even if you've never taken the class. Uh, does, does no one mean uh, most people? Does it mean some people? It means no one. No one can come to the Father unless what, what's, what has to happen. No one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. That, um, that particular definition, by the way, just so you are aware, um, that it's, it's really not that controversial. You look it up in a lexicon. A lexicon is just a, it's a dictionary for foreign words. So if you look this up in the standard Greek lexicon, this isn't me trying to proof text anything, just the first entry in there, I'm going to read you from the standard. It's called badag. This word means draw. To move an object from one area to another in a pulling motion to draw with implication that the object being moved is incapable of propelling itself or, in the case of a person, is unwilling to do so voluntarily, in either case with the implication of exertion on the part of the mover. I know that was boring, <laughs> but here's what it's saying. Some of us would think that draw means to woo, to attract, no, this, is, this word draw is normally used on inanimate objects. Like think of drawing well from a water. You don't woo well from a water. You, you don't entice it. It's incapable of being moved on its own. Therefore, it must be pulled up. That's, that's the word that's used here. And so, Jesus is saying you can't do this unless the Father draws him. This is what it looks like from the divine perspective, but I'm going to step down again because once more he's going to explain it from the human perspective. He's saying, look, you can't know what's going on in the mind of God in eternity past. He says, here's what it looks like right now where you live. We continue. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. 
And then he gives his final appeal. I I want you to notice something. He's quoting here from Isaiah chapter 54, verse 15. It'd be hard for anybody to know that. How did I find it out? I just look in my Bible with the little letters, and I find the center column thing, and it tells me where it came from. So if you ever want to know, like, it seems like something's being quoted, that's how. If you go back and read Isaiah 54, it's fascinating because that's that particular passage in Isaiah where God is promising to take his people who have been exiled and to actually return them to himself and restore them fully. And normally we think of that as like political, you know, they're going to have their own kingdom again, and financial, there's going to be a time of material abundance. But one of the things that's emphasized in the book of Isaiah is that there will be an intellectual aspect of this. That God will take their hard hearts that could not understand his law and finally enable them to understand it in a way that they receive it. And so when he's quoting here, all will be taught by God, he's talking about that end time moment in which God finally opens people's eyes to the truth. Jeremiah 31, I think it is, actually describes it as a heart of stone being replaced with a heart of flesh. Humanly speaking, What it looks like to be drawn by the Father, here it is, is to be taught by him. You say, well, I've never seen God. Well, Jesus acknowledges that. Of course you've never seen the Father, but you listen to his Son. That's why verse 46 is so important. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. How do you know what the Father teaches? You finally listen to the Son. You listen to Jesus. Those who listen to Jesus are those who are being drawn by God. Admittedly, it's a little circular, but it's just the way that Jesus explains it. So there's a human element. How do we know who's been chosen by God? How do we know who's been drawn by God? It's the person who is actually listening to and learning from the teaching of Jesus. They care about his word, as opposed to these Jewish people who are resisting his word and rejecting it. And then there's the final part of the conversation, the reiteration. Jesus started off by saying, I am the bread of life, feed of me by faith. And he closes by saying, not closes, but he sums this part up by saying the same thing. Look at verses 47 and 48. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. He wants you to believe for eternal life. That's the conversation. Can you follow it? Makes sense? We moved from just a very simple explanation to a clarification of who can believe. Then there was their objection, and then there was another clarification, and then there was reiteration. But I don't care for you to remember any of that. I'm just giving you the overflow of the argument. There's the story. Here's the significance. What are the essentials then of eternal life? Based on what Jesus said about who can really believe, who can really partake of this bread, who will enjoy eternal life, what are the three things that must be in play for this enjoyment of eternal life to take place. The first is the determination of the Father. There is no one in this room or outside of this room that will ever enjoy eternal life apart from God's determination or initiative. That is undebatable. Verse 37 All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 39, 
This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Notice this. The Father has given some to the Son. Go down to verse 44 again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's the determination of the Father to draw some. And then verse 45 It is written in the prophets, they will be taught by God. God teaches some. It's about His initiative. There's there's two categories. There's active life of God intervening, and then there's the passivity of death. Jesus uses here three analogies. Let's get back to some pictures for a second. Many of you are visual learners. The first picture that he gives, in uh, starting at verses 32, going down to verse 35, he quoted from Exodus 16, and he recalled to mind that position that the Israelites found themselves in the wilderness. Remember, they were, they were in the desert, and there's nothing to drink. There's nothing to eat. I mean, imagine it. A couple million people at least, like out in like a barren desert, think of like salt flats of Utah, and they have no hope apart from God giving, initiating something on their behalf. What did he do? Out of nowhere, he sent bread from heaven. Like they didn't, they didn't cook it up. They didn't chant it down. Like God just sent it. It was his determination to do so. They would have died apart from that. That's the first picture Jesus gives. The second picture is this gift thing. I, I, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around it, and I don't even know like the best way to explain it, but the fact that God would choose some of the dead and rebellious humanity. Remember that. We are all dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3 make this crystal clear. We're spiritually dead. Dead things don't respond. We have no opportunity to like move, and yet God chose some of these dead individuals and chose to give them over to the son as a gift like i i I mean i I think of rescue animals i think of adoption i mean i I don't even again the, the bible doesn't use a clear analogy therefore i don't it just says that he's given some and whoever these some are the 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 son sees this as some something to embrace and to keep tight to himself i mean it Have you ever been entrusted with something that someone gave to you? I think of something like a family heirloom. My grandfather, before he passed away, gave me his, I don't even think it's real gold, but it's this little Timex uh, gold watch. He wore it when he was laying brick. Uh, Why he would wear, you know, a nice watch laying, I don't know, it's just something of the time. That thing sits in a precious spot in my home. It's one of those things that the kids don't get to play with. It's one of those things that I I hold on to. I see it as valuable. It was entrusted to me. In some small way, if you've ever experienced that, that's how the son feels insofar as he is greedily holding on to those that the father has entrusted to him. But that took the father's giving, his determination And then the other analogy we used was water being drawn from a well. That's the determination of the Father. So that is the first one. It is something that God himself must do. This is a blessing. This is something that is good. 
And friends, I, I invite you to contemplate this because there are some advantages. There are some advantages to actually acknowledging the fact that the Father is determined to give some to the Son. I would say two areas in particular. One is assurance. Assurance. And then the second is confidence. Personal assurance, evangelistic confidence. Why make such a big deal out of the divine side? Why not just always talk about the human side? Well, you know, it's like if we don't, can't know what's going on in, the, in the, the councils of God and eternity past, why would we even talk about that? That's for those intellectual types. You know, it's for those guys that just like to, to read books and argue on blogs. No, let me tell you why this matters. Because Jesus is actually trying to assure his followers that come hell or high water, all will be okay because the Father determined to save them. He didn't just make salvation possible, he was their salvation. Like, I don't know about you, but I can even look back over the last three weeks and think, thank God it's not up to me. He chose me anyway. He chose me in spite of me, not because of me. How arrogant. I say this kindly, but really, how arrogant do you have to be? To think, man, I'm sure I'm glad I'm going to get in because I'm just, you know, God knew what he was doing when he picked me. (laughs) When you embrace the Father's determination, you're just saying, I was dead. He made it possible. This is good for your personal assurance and then for your evangelistic confidence. Friends, I don't know about you, but when I'm sharing the gospel with those who are seemingly rejecting it, I feel personally rejected. And you know, you try to like work up the best argument, you go back home and you think, well, I should have said this and I should have said that. And what you realize at the end of the day is that you actually get to enter into something that God himself is doing. You don't manufacture it, you get to partake of it. I think the best analogy I could give you is the one that Paul would give in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, hey, some plant, some water, but God gives the increase. I don't know about you, but I've tried my hand at some gardening around here. It hasn't gone very well. It went really well for me in North Carolina. I had two gardens that I was really proud of. Took a picture, sent them to grandparents, you know, one of those kind of things. Here, not so much. But what's interesting about the gardening endeavor, no matter where you partake of it, is that sure, there's some responsibility on your part, but at the end of the day, there's this process that's taking place that you cannot predict. Fruit comes, vegetables happen on account of God's invisible working. Like there's no one-to-one correspondence between what you're doing and what God does. You know, there have been times, in fact, where I have just let my garden go, and I would come back a year later and stuff's growing anyway, and I haven't done Jack Diddley. You know what the evangelistic endeavor is? Yeah, you get to cultivate, you get to water, you get to plant, you get to prune, but in the day, God's producing life, and you get to partake. You get to be a part of what he's doing. It's his determination that underlies the entire evangelistic endeavor. 
I love that Paul said after he's been persecuted and had the mess beat out of him on several occasions, he was going to go to a particular city. I forgot which one because he says, the father has many people in this city. He went with the confidence that God had already picked some. How will that change your evangelism? Knowing that you're just going to keep proclaiming the message because God's got some. There are some. Some will respond. Not that you make them respond, but God already picked it. That is a blessing. There's a second essential. The first is the determination of the Father. There is no enjoyment of eternal life apart from that. But there's a second, and that is the preservation of the Son. The Father determines, the Son preserves. I, I debated over the best word, but the way that the Son presents him, his ministry here is one of preserving. Basically, the Father gives people over to him, and the Son says, I will keep them, I will retain them, and I will raise them up on the last day. I would call that preservation. God gives the life, the Spirit, I mean, excuse me, the Son actually secures the life in and of himself. He is its provision Provideo, to see ahead, to ensure that all would happen that needs to happen. Where do we see this? Verse 33, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The, the life is in him. Uh, verse 35, oh, excuse me, uh, verse 37b, look at the second half of this. He says, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Look at verse 39, second half, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Not if they cooperate and they do their part, I'll do my part. Jesus says, I will make this happen. Look at the, the last half of verse 40. He says, excuse me, I just, oh yeah, whoever believes and looks, I will raise him up on the last day. I will, not I might, not I should, not I could, but I will raise him up on the last day. He says the same thing in verse 44. I will raise him up on the last day. Like, there's just no question. This is just something that the Son will do. He will preserve those that the Father has given to him. He is, if the Father is the initiator, the Son is the executor. He is the one that makes it happen. Everything that we need is in Jesus. Now, by the way, I'm going to reference a name, but I'm not going to use it in the way that seems controversial. I remember reading or coming across a few years ago a meditation of, of John Calvin on the sufficiency of Christ. And he, normally people think of Calvin as the guy that thinks of, you know, teaches that God elects. He, that's true, he does do that. But what I'm quoting him here for is not that. I'm quoting him because he does a good job at showing that everything that you could possibly need for eternal life is in Jesus. And again, he wrote it kind of like a poem, but it was in Latin, and now it's been translated into English, so it's not going to be as poetic as original, so just bear with me. When we see salvation whole, it's every single part is found in Christ. We must beware lest we derive the smallest drop from somewhere else. If we seek salvation, the very name of Jesus teaches us that he possesses it. If other spirit-given gifts are sought, in his anointing they are found. You need strength? Anybody need strength? You find it in his reign. You need purity? It's in his conception. He was free from sin. You need tenderness? It's expressed in his nativity in which he was made like us in all respects that he might fill our pain. 
Anybody need redemption? When we see it, in his passion it is found. Acquittal? In his condemnation lies. Freedom from the curse in his cross is known. If satisfaction for our sins we seek, we'll find it in his sacrifice. Cleansing? You find that in his blood. And if it's reconciliation that we need, for it he entered Hades. If mortification of our flesh, then in its tomb it is laid. And newness of our life, his resurrection brings an immortality as well come also with that gift. And if we long to find heaven's kingdom, our inheritance, his entry there secures it now with our protection and safety too. And blessings that abound all flowing from his kingly reign. And he concludes this way. The sum of all for those who seek such treasure trove of blessings, the blessings of all kinds is this, from nowhere else than him can they be drawn, for they are ours in Christ alone. When I was a child growing up in church, we sang hymns like the one we sang earlier, um, How Firm a Foundation, I remember singing that. Another one that we sang that I thought was just fantastic is Jesus Paid It All. Do you know that song, anybody? Don't worry, I'm not going to lead us in a breakout rendition of Jesus Paid It All. But remember I told you, remember I told you that I grew up kind of embracing this, this realm of it? That's where we sang Jesus Paid It All. But as I've reflected on it further, it seems as if we were singing something a little different. And friends, I'd warn you if this be the case, maybe these words sound familiar, at least in principle, if not on the page. Jesus paid it some, most to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, we washed it white as snow. Doesn't quite have the same ring to it, does it? And yet for all that we say about the Son being our salvation and securing everything, somehow we make it the royal we. Jesus paid it all. All, all to Him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. What is essential for you or those that you love to enjoy eternal life? The determination of the Father and the preservation of the Son. And there's one more. I hope you noticed it as we were reading through those verses. I give it just a creative name for the sake of memorance. The fixation of the partaker. Determination, preservation, fixation. I would have just said the, the faith or the sight, but what happens every time I do that is somebody's like, well, you couldn't think of a word with a T-I-O-N at the end. Fixation. The gaze. The, the sight. In fact, when I use the word fixation, it's not far from what Jesus himself is using. He says, look to me. Come to me. Believe in me. Did you notice how many times, 
Hence why I was up on the stage and then down off of the stage. How many times he was actually speaking on the human level and not saying, hey, this is what was going on in the council of eternity, but like talking to individuals, like almost with finger pointed at them saying, you believe in me, you look to me, you come to me. He doesn't just say, okay, sirrah, sirrah. What, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. No, he makes an appeal to the individuals that are there. This is the means that he's chosen. He says, all right, yes, the Father has to determine and the Son has to preserve, but you must look in faith. It's all in Jesus, but there is a, a human element, a, a part of responsibility. Uh, Sproul helped me with this several years ago. I remember listening to him on the radio, and he said, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are like two parallel lines that meet in eternity. You're like, wait. Parallel lines don't meet. Uh, friends, it's a paradox. This is where we get in trouble. Because our little puny human brains just think that we can figure everything out about God. That the small-minded individual that is not aware of his mind's smallness will only see things from the human responsibility level or only see things from the divine level, and they don't recognize that God has some amazing way of making the two work. If you're a philosophical nerd in the room, it's called compatibilism. Who, is, who are you to say that God can't be totally sovereign and in control and that be perfectly aligned with what we really, really want to do? I don't know how to explain it to you, but guess what? I believe it. I believe it because it is there. I, I don't know how to explain the Trinity to you, friends. I don't know how three persons subsist in one essence, and yet I believe that. Divine human authorship of Scripture? Hey, I'm going to admit something else I don't know. I don't get how that works. Who wrote the book of Romans? Paul or the Spirit? Well, they both did. What about the hypostatic union? When was the last time you used that phrase? That, that's what we're just referring to, the true humanity of Jesus and the true divinity of Jesus. How does that work? Can't explain it. And how does the Father's determination work with the individual's fixation? Can't answer that, but this is what I know is true. You must believe on the Son to enjoy eternal life. You must believe in Him. Look, the, I'm, I'm going to rip off Spurgeon because his appeal, I wish that I could just think this clearly, so, and I'm not as, as gifted as he is, and so I want you to listen to his appeal as he makes the case for those that he's preaching to to look to Jesus in faith. And the way that he says this, I think, will make it crystal clear of what it means to enjoy eternal life. Here's his explanation. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this, for he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You will never be able to continue to the end. You have not the joy of his children. You have such a wavering hold of Jesus. All these are thoughts about self, and we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking from within. 
You ever do that? Did I repent enough? Did I pray enough? Am I holy enough? Are my desires pure enough? Do I enjoy enough victory? That's, that's what he's saying is the problem. You're looking to self. Here's the alternative. But the Holy Spirit, the one taught by God, turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is all and in all. Remember, therefore, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to thy hand with which thou art grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to thy hope, but to Jesus. The source of thy hope, look not to thy faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of thy faith. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, and our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus, coming to Jesus, partaking of Jesus, believing in Jesus. Keep thine eye simply on him. Let his death, sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercession be fresh on thy mind. When thou wakest in the morning, look to him. When thou liest down at night, look to him. Oh, let not thy hopes or fears come between thee and Jesus. Follow hard after him. Feed much on him and he will never fail thee. I wish I could just say that extemporaneously, but I'm telling you, friends, that is, that is right in line with this text. What is essential? Yeah, the termination of the Father. Yes, the preservation of the Son. But the fixation of the individual, the looking unto Jesus, that is your part to enjoy eternal life. So come and enjoy if you so desire. That's what I think is semi-hilarious about people that would object to those who would view the Scriptures through more of a divine sovereignty lens. They would say, I can't believe that God and the councils of eternity would pick people and drag them into heaven kicking and screaming. Friends, God does not do that. Or this is implied. I can't believe that God would push people out of heaven who actually want to go there. That is not what's implied. It says, whosoever will may come. Like, if you desire, you're in. He's not doing it against your will. He's not preventing you from coming if you want. Whoever wants him, whoever believes in him, whoever looks to him, that's the one who will enjoy eternal life. And so I tell you, if you're here today, because I know that there are some who have yet to look to him, you keep looking at yourself, you keep looking at your performance, you keep looking at the signs and sacraments of other religious institutions that you've partaken of in times past, you need to look to Jesus now and be saved. Nothing else needs to take place. Just look to him now in faith. You say, well, what does this mean for me if I'm already looking? How does this help me in the meantime, friends? I hope that it will assure you that something supernatural has taken place in your heart and life if you've ever looked to Jesus in faith in the first place. Do you understand the magnitude of what's taken place? It's not because you grew up in a Christian home. It's not because somebody like, was really persuasive with the Bible. 
I mean, the way that it is presented ultimately throughout the New Testament is that you were dead and you would hate anything to have to do with Christ apart from his sovereign grace and enablement. Think of the way that Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. He says that the preaching of the gospel is foolishness to those who don't believe. There are a bunch of people who were sleeping in this morning and had a nice walk already who think that you are something close to mentally insane for showing up and listening to this teaching on a Jewish rabbi from 2,000 years ago. It is foolishness. The Greek word, by the way, moros. Use your imagination. And Paul says... To those who believe it is the power of God, something has happened. I like the way that he describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 or 2, verses 14 to 16. He says, the preaching of this apostolic ministry is for some an aroma of life and for others the stench of death. (laughs) Have you ever had that experience before? Like, I've, I've done this wife shopping for perfume and she thinks oh isn't this lovely and I'm like (laughs) you can smell the same thing but some people just find it fixating and some people think it's absolutely disgusting the aroma of Christ is enticing for those that the father has chosen Something supernatural has taken place for you to be drawn to him. Otherwise, it would still be revolting. You would still be pushing him away. I hope that assures you, friends. Something supernatural has taken place. God has radically intervened to give you this desire to look to his son by faith. And do you fail? Yes, but he will hold you fast. The father determines. The individual is fixated, but the son he preserves. He's the one that gets you to the last day. He's the one that raises you up in the resurrection. He's the one that ensures your eternal life in the end. And if you're experiencing that desire for him now, you are guaranteed to be satisfied fully when he returns in the future. And so, my appeal to you, who are already feeding on Christ today, is to cry out in faith again, with the assurance that you are safe, all is well, things are good, because of the determination of the Father, the preservation of the Son, and the subsequent fixation of the individual upon Jesus. You need to confess that again with faith today. That is a win for us. And if you're here today and you're like, that's not me, I don't know, I would encourage you, listen to us testify of this enjoyment and satisfaction in Jesus. Listen to us sing of it and contemplate whether or not you would want that as well. And if you do, Talk to one of those people who were singing before you leave and ask them about it. Because today could be the day that you, too, enjoy eternal life. I want to pray and then ask our musicians to come. Father, the word has been preached. Your son has once more been presented. 
And now we are invited to look at him again by faith to enjoy him. All here today, everyone under the sound of my voice in this moment is invited to look to Jesus in faith and be saved. Oh Lord, open the eyes of those who are blind. Unstop their ears. Or give life to dead limbs that they may come and enjoy you by faith. And for those of us that you have supernaturally enabled for those of us that you have retained into your sovereign care. Lord, assure our hearts, despite our failures, despite our occasional faithlessness, I pray that your people would know peace today and that it would pay off in their relationships with others even this week. So assure us now as we sing that which we know to be true. In Jesus' name, amen.